0: Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Now, I'd like to meet the bright spark that came up with that saying, because I'd like to take that stick that he's talking about and whack him on the head with it, because it's such a stupid saying, isn't it? Absolutely ridiculous to suggest that uh, names can never hurt us. It's just not true. Name-calling and mockery, you know, can really hurt us. In fact, it delivers the target of ongoing ridicule. Well, it can be absolutely soul-destroying. You know, usually people who face um, ridicule, they're the people uh, who are different. You know, that's why they face ridicule, because they're different in some way. It's their their physical appearance or it's their personality or it's the, the type of food that they eat or it's the football team that they support. They're different in one way or another. And I guess, therefore, it shouldn't surprise us Christians too much to realise that we will often be the target of ridicule and contempt because in terms of the world, there, there is nobody more different than the Christian. In fact, I reckon that it's fair to say that if you are doing more than just playing at being a Christian, then you will be the target of ridicule and contempt because you will be different. In fact, I realise that some of you are already facing the stinging attacks of others uh, on account of your faith. I know that for some of you that comes from other family members. I know that for some of you it's come from university lecturers. Uh, for, for others of you it's um, you know, been in the workplace. And then there's other, others of us who have also been the victims of ridicule and contempt but in a quite different way. You know, those of us who have been too frightened uh, to ask people to church because we, we're scared of what they might say, what they might um, come back with. Uh, we're too frightened to just come out and tell people about Jesus because we're, we're frightened of, you know, the names they might call us or um, other, other things like that. I think that you too are a victim of ridicule and contempt. A gutless victim, but a victim nonetheless Now, you add to these very personal attacks that battering that we Christians face every day from the newspapers, from people like Richard Dawkins, you know, the atheist author, from from certain Hollywood movies. You put all this together and it can be quite overwhelming. The message at the end of the day is that you, Christian, are a stupid, ignorant, brainwashed, extremist bigot Now you hear that message loud enough and and long enough and it can really take its toll. It can be soul-destroying. So how then are we as Christians to live in the face of ridicule and contempt? How should should we respond? You know, when we're at the point we just can't handle it anymore, what should we do? Well, Psalm 123, the psalm that we're going to be looking at this evening, I think, actually helps us to consider how we as Christians should respond to ridicule and contempt. We're going to look at this Psalm 123 together tonight, but before we turn there, um, why don't we turn to God in prayer? Let's pray. Our Father, this evening, as we think about how we as your people ought to respond to scorn and contempt, that this world throws at us. We pray that you would help us to understand your ways from your word and that you would help us to live them out to your glory. Amen. All right please turn with me now to Psalm 123 uh, page 441 of the small print 966 of the large print Bibles. Psalm 123. Now, psalm 123 is a song of ascent. you can uh, see that in the title of the psalm, see it up the top of the psalm, a song of ascents, uh, it's literally a song of climbing, uh, there's 15 songs of ascent in the book of Psalms and so they're all grouped together there for us and these are the songs that would have been sung by the Israelites during their pilgrim festivals. You see, three times a year, every year, all of the Israelites they were expected to make a pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate three festivals. There was the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was as these Israelites made their way to Jerusalem, and as they climbed Mount Zion, the mountain on which uh, Jerusalem is built, it's as they climbed that they sang these songs of ascent, these songs of climbing. What's interesting about Psalm 123 is that during this time of national celebration, uh, during all of these festivities, the Israelites are here actually singing a song of complaint, a song of frustration. It seems that the Israelites have been the subject of some pretty serious ridicule. They've been the target of stinging attacks, of scorn, of contempt, and now, well, now they're fed up. They've had all that they can handle. So how do they respond? What do they do? Well, what they do is they, they look upwards. They look up to heaven. In fact, in fact, they look up to the one who is enthroned in heaven. Have a look with me at verse 1 of Psalm 123. I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. You see, when the Israelites had had all the scorn and contempt that they could handle, what did they do? They looked up. They looked up to God Almighty. And it was a smart move. Because you see, as they looked up, they could not look any higher. They were looking up to the highest of all authorities, to the highest of all powers. I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. They looked up to the one whose throne is above all. To the one who looks down and sees all. To the one who hears all. To the one who administers all of the affairs of the universe. It's very smart. These Israelites, they look up to the sovereign God. But this, um, this looking up of the Israelites you've got to realise that this looking up to the sovereign God, it was more than just a a fleeting glance. No, this is an intense and a steadfast stare. You know, the, the eyes of these Israelites, they're a little bit like the eyes of a slave, we're told, a slave who watches the hand of his master, or a little bit like the eyes of a maid as she watches the hand of her mistress. You know, the way that a A slave or a servant stands by silently but alert. You know, his eyes always fixed on his master, absorbed in watchful expectation, waiting for some little gesture, some little sign from the hand of his master that would um, um, demonstrate the will of the master. Well, it's with that kind of intense stare that these Israelites now look up to God. See there with me in uh, verse 2, verse 2. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. You know, this, um, this analogy of the slave intensely watching uh, the hand of his master, it reminds me a little bit of a blue cattle dog that I used to own. And if you ever had a ball in your hand in the presence of this blue cattle dog, well, he'd be right there, right about two, sitting about two feet in front of you, you know, looking up, eyes wide open, fixed on you, waiting to see what you would do with this ball. You know, Come on, come on, give me the ball, I want the ball, give me the ball. And you'd move, your, you'd move your hand around with this ball in it and the dog's head would move around in unison, never averting his gaze. Nothing in all of creation could distract that dog from watching what you did with that ball. You see, the Israelites are fed up with the ridicule and the contempt that they've copped. Now they have lifted their eyes to the sovereign God and now they will not avert their gaze until he shows them his mercy, until he gives them relief from all of those who deride them. Now the Israelites, they will wait patiently For God's merciful intervention. Now, I kind of hope that it's obvious that this is uh, poetic language being used here. That the Israelites aren't literally staring up at the sky 24 hours a day, every day, until God comes and stops all these people from hassling them. You know, imagine if that was the case. Imagine them climbing Mount Zion while they're looking up to the sky. Imagine half of them probably fall off into a ravine somewhere along the way. And the other half probably permanently blinded from staring up into the midday sun. I hope you realise that this is poetic language being used here. But I hope you also realise the heartfelt sentiment that goes behind that poetic language. You know, these Israelites, they have fixed their desire, their hope, their confidence, their expectation upon the Lord. They're looking to him as the sovereign God. And now they will wait patiently for his merciful intervention. And then in verses 3 and 4, we see that it really is ridicule and contempt that has caused these Israelites to cry out to God in this way caused them to cry out to him for mercy. Read with me verses 3 and 4. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt. We have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. Now the idea behind that phrase, we've endured much contempt, much ridicule, Uh, Behind that phrase is the idea of of being full to overflowing. You know, Lord, we are full to overflowing with ridicule and contempt. It holds the idea that these Israelites have have faced more than just the odd snide remark. No, they've been the target of a harsh, relentless onslaught of scorn and derision. And now it's taken its toll. They've had all, about all that they can handle. They are full to overflowing. Who are these people who have treated the Israelites with such contempt? Well, actually, we don't really know. You know the psalm doesn't tell us and it doesn't really give us any clues. All we know is what they're described as there. They're, they're described as proud and arrogant. Do you see that there again in verse 4? We've endured much ridicule from the proud Much contempt from the arrogant. You see, these people, they're the exact opposite to to the Israelites in Psalm 123. The Israelites, they're there humbly coming before God. Well, these people, they're proud. They're arrogant. I guess the other obvious question to ask is, is did God actually answer the prayer of Psalm 123? You know, was he merciful towards these Israelites? Did he silence these proud and arrogant mockers? Well, again, the fact is we don't know. The psalm doesn't tell us. But here's what we know for sure. Here's what we know for sure. When the Israelites were filled to overflowing with ridicule and contempt, they looked to the sovereign God and they waited patiently for his merciful intervention. That's what we know for sure. And you know, as we look at this response of the Israelites in this psalm, I I can't help but think of Jesus Christ and the way that he responded to a lifetime of ridicule and contempt, a lifetime of derision that culminated at the cross. I can't help but think of Jesus Christ who in many ways endured the most wicked contempt of all of history. We had read for us just a little of uh, what Jesus faced in our second Bible reading this evening. You know, and of course, it's it's the true identity of Jesus as the Son of God that makes this particular ridicule so obscene. There, remember in that first Bible, in the uh, second Bible reading, there he is, surrounded by a whole company of soldiers. What do they do? They strip him. Then they dress him up in a scarlet robe. Then they put a crown on his head, crown of thorns. And then they put a staff in his hand. Then they get down in front of him, they kneel down, they go, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spit on him. Then they take the staff that they gave him, they take it back from him, and then they start whacking him on the head again and again and again with it. Then there was the the ridicule of a public execution on a cross, no less. That mocking sign above his head. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Those walked by, you know, they shook their heads. Contempt. They hurled their insults at him. Save yourself, son of God. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. To think that even the low-life scum that were crucified along with Jesus that day dared hurl their insults at him too. Never in the history of the world have human beings ever been more proud, more arrogant than in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You talk about being full to overflowing with contempt and ridicule. Well, Jesus knew what that meant better than anyone. As we uh, think about the way that Jesus responded to this mockery, I think there are many similarities to the Israelites of Psalm 123. I guess that's because in many ways Psalm 123 was always intended to be something of a glimpse of what was to come, you know, a shadowy picture of the ridicule and contempt that Jesus would face, a shadowy picture of his response. So it's not surprising that when we see Jesus fall to overflowing with ridicule and contempt, it's not surprising that then we see him looking upwards. Metaphorically speaking, looking upwards, looking up to his sovereign father in heaven. You know, we see it in his whole life, a whole life spent you know, praying. We see it so clearly in the garden of Gethsemane as he pours out his heart to God. You know, he, he knows who the highest authority is, He knows who the highest power is. He knows what the smart thing to do is. And so we see him looking up. And then we see him waiting patiently for his his father's merciful intervention. You know, like the steadfast stare of the Israelites in Psalm 123. Jesus, he he refused to be distracted by anything. It was that, that patience That was evident even in his his dying breath. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Knowing, trusting that his Father's merciful intervention would come. And of course, friends, we know that it did come, don't we? We know that it did come. It came in the resurrection. God raising Jesus, from death to life, God's merciful intervention, turning vilification into vindication. God the Father then giving Jesus the responsibility of one day judging all people and turning all of his mockers into world bird food. See so Psalm 123, it's a shadowy picture of Jesus on the cross. It shows us how the righteous son of God would respond in the depths of ridicule and contempt. And for that very reason, it shows us how we too can respond to ridicule and contempt. Because Christian, we have been called to be just like Jesus was when he faced mockery. I don't know if you realise this, but in the book of 1 Peter, in the Bible... The book of 1 Peter, it's talking about when uh, Jesus was facing all these insults from people. And this is what we read. We read, Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. Did you get that? Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. So how ought we to respond to the ridicule and and contempt that we face as Christians? From our families, our university lecturers, our workmates, from the newspapers? What should we do? Well, we should follow the example of Jesus. We should follow the pattern that has been set up in Psalm 123. In other words, we too should look up to the sovereign God. And then wait patiently for his merciful intervention. What's that going to look like? What's that going to look like in real concrete terms? Well, of course, looking up to the sovereign God will mean... It'll mean bringing our concerns before him in prayer. Crying out to God with the burdens that this contemptuous world lays upon us. It'll mean looking up to him who is enthroned in heaven to the one who is the highest of all authorities, to he who is the highest of all powers, knowing that that is the smart thing to do. Now, you'd think that looking up would come so naturally for us as Christians, wouldn't you? That it would be such a natural thing for us to do. But I don't think it is. If it were natural, then I dare say that in a church of, what, 150 adults, you'd expect to see more than just eight people at a monthly prayer meeting, as was the case this month. I don't think looking up is natural for us. It was Spurgeon, the great preacher, who wrote, we must use our eyes with resolution For they will not go upward to the Lord of themselves, but they incline to look downward or inward or anywhere but to the Lord. Let it be our firm resolve that the heavenward glance shall not be lacking. Sounds like wise advice to me. So let's take it. Let's resolve to look up to the sovereign God and ask him for his help. And then well, then we wait patiently for his merciful intervention. What will that look like, I wonder? Well, I guess it will mean that we we keep on looking, you know, that we keep on praying, that we don't avert our gaze, that we don't lose heart when there seems to be no end to the ridicule and the contempt, that we, we hang in there, that we don't look for our own way out, that we keep our confidence in God And we wait. And of course, friends, this waiting, this waiting is made much easier in the knowledge that God will mercifully intervene. Maybe in this life, definitely in the next, but it's the vindication of Jesus that has already taken place through his resurrection from the dead and it's our unity with him in that. It's this, that guarantees God's merciful intervention in our lives, one way or the other. And that I find to be very reassuring. So then, does that mean waiting patiently for God's merciful intervention requires inactivity on our part? Does it mean that we just, you know, sit by passively, twiddling our thumbs, waiting What should we do, for example, when a a newspaper publishes cartoons lampooning our saviour, Jesus Christ? What do we do with the likes of Richard Dawkins? What do we do with our antagonistic university lecturers? What do we do with those people we deal with day by day, our family, our workmates? Do we just uh, sigh, say a quick prayer and sit down and wait? Is that what we're to do? Are we to pull our heads in? Are we to shrink back? Are we keep our mouths shut? Is that what waiting patiently involves? Well, no, I don't think so. I think that waiting patiently for God's merciful intervention actually involves activity rather than inactivity. In fact, I think that we have a responsibility to stand up for Christ in our world and give reasons for the faith that we confess a responsibility to defend the name of our Saviour. I believe that to some degree, God can silence the proud and the arrogant now. And that to some degree, he can use us to do that. Of course, if we are relying on God to work through us in that way, then we'll only ever respond to ridicule and contempt on his terms. It means that we will not go down to the Sydney Morning Herald tomorrow and blow it up, that we might res- write a respectful letter of defence. It means that we won't be calling for the execution of Richard Dawkins, though we might publish a book which convincingly shows the holes in his arguments. It means that we won't walk down the front of the lecture hall and slap our lecturer across the cheek though we might choose to respectfully challenge his views. It means that we won't dissociate ourselves from our family members. It means that we, we won't abuse our workmates, though we might seek to win them over with acts of love. See, I believe that God can use us now to actively defend Jesus in this world. But the means... But that means that our behaviour must always be marked with kindness and humility and compassion because you see, friends, God works in no other way. Friends, we live in a most contemptuous world, don't we? And as Christians, we will face ridicule and contempt. But this evening we've seen that there is an appropriate way for us to respond. So let's be like the Israelites of Psalm 123. Let's be like Jesus Christ. Let's follow his example. And let's look up to the sovereign God. And let's wait wait patiently for his merciful intervention. Well, friends, as we look down now and bow our heads, let's at the same time be looking up, shall we, to him, our sovereign God, and ask him to help us to live his way. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, uh, we do thank you that in Psalm 123 we see that shadowy picture of the ridicule and the contempt that Jesus faced on the cross. Thank you that we see a picture of how he responded. Help us, Father, to be like him, to, to follow his example. Father, in times when we face all the ridicule that we can bear, when we're full to overflowing, cause us to look up to you calls us to, to call upon you as the sovereign one, the one enthroned in heaven. Forgive us, Father, our tendency to look anywhere but to you. And finally, Father, help us, help us to wait patiently for your merciful intervention, never losing heart, but actively defending our Saviour and always doing it on your terms and in the knowledge that our ultimate vindication has already been one in our Saviour Jesus Christ, through whom we pray. Amen.